This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You do have that moment of like imposter syndrome, like, um, yes, Emma Camp from Essex is now standing like at the UN, like what is going on here? Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, then come on over to our website at don'tstopusnow.co and sign up for our community with some awesome things planned for this year. Now for this week's episode. This week's guest is Dr. Emma Camp a British marine biogeochemist who's doing vital research into how to save the world's coral reefs. Emma's also a National Geographic explorer and a United Nations young leader, and she searches out and then studies corals that can naturally survive in extreme conditions such as mangroves. Now, this might sound simple, but it leads Emma to listing crocodiles as one of the greatest risks of a day in the office. Despite her relative youth, Emma's pioneering research work and her passion for saving coral reefs has seen her receive numerous honours and highly Prize research fellowships. And she's determined to bring the issue to life for everyone, as she knows the world's reefs need all the help they can get. They sure do. In this episode, you'll hear how Emma used her determination and ingenuity to go from struggling to break into academia to starting her own company to get the research experience she needed, how her dad's mantra helps her reach her goals what it felt like the first time she found herself at the UN General Assembly, and the real story about the state of the world's coral reefs and what you can do to make a difference. So important. So enjoy this episode with the passionate and determined Dr. Emma Camp. Emma Camp, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. It's really great to have you here and I'm fascinated to have this conversation that we're going to have with you today. Thank you both for having me and I'm equally excited. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it would be great if we could start with you describing what you do. Well, so I'm a marine biologist and I primarily do research um, and my research focuses around understanding the impact that climate change is having on the world's coral reefs, particularly though trying to understand if there's certain pockets of resilience. So are there some corals that are tougher that might survive into the future and then trying to understand how. Also big on sort of advocating women in STEM, so trying to encourage active participation, particularly of young people, and also sort of advocating for change in terms of climate um, action. And you are attached to a university in Sydney, 
but you've got an English accent, yeah? Yes, yes. that's correct. So I'm currently based at the University of Technology, Sydney. I've been in Sydney for about three and a half years now, but born and raised in Essex, England, so quite far from home. <laughs> How did a girl who grew up in, in Essex become fascinated with marine biology and in particular coral? This is a good question. So gr- growing up in, I guess, like the concrete jungle, that was my hometown, I always loved the ocean. Like I just had a fascination from reading when I was younger and I just, yeah, I just, I just loved the ocean. And I think I must have been about so nine or 10, my family took me to the Bahamas and I went snorkeling and my world was just kind of turned upside down. I couldn't believe that there was life under the water. Like for, for being at that age, I was just, you know, mesmerized. And then, so I always had a love and I think I imagined naively then that I'd be more like a dolphin trainer. I didn't really understand, you know, what was possible as a marine biologist. As I got older, I realized sort of how valuable the oceans are. So how much sort of economic value, cultural value, just general biology value they have and then actually how badly they're degrading but by human activity and that was something that I really struggled with and I thought actually I want to be able to try to do something about that and it from there sort of became a passion and and yeah my work. Amazing and I know preserving the oceans is something both Claire and I care passionately about so we're both really excited to have you here today. Thanks. So we're definitely going to delve into the work that you do preserving the reefs in a moment. But first, I'm really curious about what else in your childhood influenced where you are today. Yeah, so I think beyond some of the experiences we talked about, sort of just say going snorkeling when I was younger with my dad, I think a big part of sort of character building and, and helped me gain the mindset and skills I've got now was actually through sports. So I grew up playing basketball. I loved basketball. And she is very tall, listeners. <laughs> and I was um, no, I was lucky enough to yeah work hard and got selected for the Great Britain national team. So I played for five years at a, a high international level. And through that, from sort of starting out and not being, you know, I started playing quite late in life, so I wasn't particularly good. But I had height and I had natural like agility and speed, but the skills weren't there. So it was a bit kind of sink or swim, like someone saw potential in me and said, "Hey, you know, if you work really hard at this, you." could be really good so you know it was a slow process but I actually then started to see my efforts returned which was you know again then makes you want to continue to work hard but also I guess through sport you learn to work as a team you know you learn to win lose you learn that you can try your absolute best and then you still lose or that you know things go against you you get bad refs or you know something happens and the outcome that you wanted didn't come through and so actually a lot of the skills that I take into my everyday life now I think really develops from a younger age like through playing sport. So it sounds as if you needed those skills even in your early career. Yeah I didn't have a straight road into being a coral scientist at a leading university. It took me volunteering at a consultancy company in the UK doing woodland research, which was nothing that I was interested in, but I wanted to get a foot in the door to like upskill in certain monitoring skills at that point. And then I was able to transfer those skills into coral science. Tell us a bit about that journey because I have a sense it wasn't that easy. So when I finished my master's, my plan was to do more environmental consultancy. So I 
wanted to apply for consultancy roles this was back in the UK and I think I put in the best part of like 54 applications or something and it was in the middle of the recession it was the first thing that was getting cut was these like graduate level environmental jobs Envi- the environment was not sexy at that moment in time so I wasn't getting interviews I wasn't finding out why I wasn't getting interviews and then it sort of came to a crunch time so I was still living at home and my dad was like right you know you got to get out. You got to just going to have to go do a job. And I was like, I've been, you know, in academics for six years to do this and I want to do this. And so it was like, okay, step back. How else can I get what I need? Because the only feedback that I got was that I didn't have enough experience. So well, frustrating. I, I can't get experience yeah. if I don't get in the door or there isn't a position available. So then I was like, okay, I need to get a bit creative and, and work out how I can obtain these skills and so I actually ended up setting my own environmental consultancy company um, in the UK and I focused in on a very niche area which was environmental audits which is what I had upskilled in and actually done some of at the volunteering consultancy work and yeah just used a network of sort of friends and families businesses that I knew needed to have this energy audit legally and it just knew policy that come in and was just really honest I wrote letters say look I'm started out I have professional insurance I can do this job I don't have any experience but I'm not going to get any unless you give me a chance and some people said yeah no and some people said okay and That then allowed me to start building the experience that I needed. It was never the avenue that I expected to take, but I couldn't see how else I was going to get down the path I was going. So I needed to change the the route to try to get there. It feels like you really needed resilience in that kind of period of time. What did you sort of tell yourself mentally just to keep up the fight? I think, yeah, resiliency, even now in in the work that I do, I think is a key feature. But again, I think for me, it's always going back to what's the alternative. The alternative was giving up and going into a different job that wasn't what deep down I knew I wanted to do, or I could try to find a way to get there. And even if that had meant, say, working part-time and doing the job for free for a few years to get there, that was sort of the mindset that I had. To me, it was being authentic and sort of integral to myself and that's what I wanted and I had to work out the best way to get there and having confidence and belief that in the end you will. Were there certain things you sort of said to yourself or did just to stay strong within that period of uncertainty? Yeah that's a yeah an interesting question so growing up my dad was always like I will and I can and it was like I can't is not in our vocabulary because I remember times I can't do this or <laughs> it's never going to happen and my dad was just very short and said I will like I can and I will. Yeah well and I can yeah. and even to this day you know I tell myself that because it's really easy in anything we do to let other people put you down to get self-doubt. Talking of having a strong mindset and resilience I'm a big scuba diver as I think you know I remember you know a few years ago going up to the Great Barrier Reef just after I think it was the first bleaching or maybe it could have been the second and just being completely blown away by how the coral had changed. Like, I think two thirds of it was dead. I remember just feeling that complete devastation. For you, that must go right down to your bones and your your soul because that's what what you're doing. How do you think about that and get it into perspective I guess. Yeah it is hard and actually I was I guess to contextualise that when there was two back-to-back mass bleaching events so between 2015 and 2016 and so about 50% of the northern Great Barrier died during that time and that won't come back in our lifetime but beyond that it didn't just happen in Australia so I was actually in the Seychelles at the same time that the Barrier Reef was bleaching and there was mass bleaching there and 
within three days I saw coral cover that was probably the size of two to three football pitches all alive die and it just went from being a bright orange you know vibrant reef to then being stark white to then having algae overgrown which is the sign that it's actually at that point died Mm. and that for me was the first time you know I mean like I was crying underwater because I was just like wow we've done this you know as a society and but equally I tell myself you know there is still hope and I think this is really important because there's still a lot of the barrier reef that is very healthy there's still coral reefs globally that are healthy and that we're really at a point now where we have got to make a decision and we have to act to save the corals that we've got left so to me that's my motivation is that not all hope is lost and that we can't assume that someone else is going to solve that problem like we have to do what we can and for me you know if I have children in the future I want to look back and say like I did what I could to conserve this I didn't want that to be a privilege that we had but we took away from your generation yeah absolutely I would imagine though that sometimes you feel overwhelmed by it all though how do you get your mind through that it is overwhelming I think it's probably overwhelming for a lot of people when we think about climate change it's always bigger than us Mm. as an individual I can feel like that sometimes like I'm doing my research I'm trying to use you know I'm using my keep cups I'm walking I'm doing all my activities but I'm hearing on the news that things are getting worse but I think that we have to continue to grow as a movement and continue to talk about it and try to get more people involved and that gives me you know some comfort on times when I'm feeling down about is it's like what's the alternative to give up and that's not an option so you know yes sometimes it's overwhelming and it it is saddening but equally more motivation to just keep trying because the alternative is not one I want to go no for sure and actually it might be a good time to ask you what individuals can do to actually make a difference this is an interesting question because I think I've changed my perspective on it from going to the UN General Assembly at the end of last year and and actually seeing the scale of the problem and and hearing from leaders across the world about how severe this the climate change problem is that from where before I my answer was solely focused on on the small actions which I think are still key so using your keep cup trying to walk you know when you can getting involved in beach cleanups or any local activities but now I actually think it's crucial that we are putting more pressure on politicians and I think that we have to look at how we're voting and we need to hold our governments accountable and that's something that everybody can do and the key is engagement it's not someone else's problem it's all of our problem and it will continue to be all of our problem So let's engage in it and encourage and expect more of our local government, of our regional, of our national governments to fulfil the commitments that they've agreed to at the international level. You talked about going to the UN then last year. So that was a pretty big deal from all accounts. Tell us what led you to be there. Yes. So about a year and a half ago, um, I saw an application online for uh, UN Young Leaders for the Sustainable Development Goals. I was lucky enough to be selected as one of the young leaders and that took me to the General assembly where I was able to sort of sit in on some of the high level events and do some media sort of talks about the work I'm doing and also how to engage young people and the public more in the issue of climate change and I guess how we mentioned before how it can seem like such a big problem how we can try to start to understand that and get involved. So was there a moment there because you said how you really changed your view about what we as individuals can do was there a moment that sort of you know it was like holy shit 
you know, when you heard these other leaders speaking about the the gravity of yeah. climate change, tell us about that. Yeah, the first evening we were there, we were sort of at a, a meet and greet and the Secretary General for the United Nations got up and gave a talk and it was of all of the sort of goals that he would have spoken about, he really focused around climate change and how it affects everything else and how all of these other issues will be sort of worsened by that. And just seeing you know, it's very easy as a researcher to become very focused about your specific project and, you know, how important that is, but actually realising how big this issue of climate change is and how it, it isn't biased. You know, yes, some people are more impacted than others, but ultimately it will affect everybody. And that was a moment for me that I was like, okay, we need to be thinking bigger. We need to be acting bigger if we actually want to tackle this problem. Switching back to sort of the work you're doing, how do you come up with the specific ideas for your research? Obviously, funding is always key and academics are constantly looking for grant funding. How difficult is that process? It is difficult. So I'll start with the research question. Sometimes it happens by chance. Sometimes you're very clear what you set out to do. And I'll elaborate on that a bit more. So my PhD, like a lot of people's PhD when they started out, had one direction. And I was like gung-ho, young, that's what I'm doing. Yes, I'm ready and raring to go. I was based in the Cayman Islands. I set off on my own with all of my equipment. And within about a month, my, my hypothesis were just shot. Like it wasn't right. Um, it was Sounds basically like a, a load of crap, really. So I was like, oh, okay. So then you're like, okay, what did I learn from this? And and then actually from that, then I was like, okay, I'll start exploring some other systems to try and find these like more tolerant corals. And I happened to be walking by some mangroves and I was like, oh, I had my little multimeter, which was testing the sort of how extreme the conditions were. And I stuck them in and I was like, oh, that was quite low pH, quite hot relative. And, and from that, then I was like, oh, maybe I've been looking at the wrong, in the wrong system with right hypotheses and things so sometimes it can be you know a bit sort of using your logic but are just being adaptable to changing situations and then other times often it's building on the research that other people have done so the key with science is that you know you don't want to reinvent what someone else has done and it should be always moving forward so like we can look back at what others have done and saying okay they got this far and the key now is that we've got this new technology that allows us to take that a step further you know and so then trying to build on that then the fun happens in terms of trying to get funding and you know the key is really just to diversify streams you know we've got government funding private funding non-for-profits and really just trying to explore avenues but often if the science is sound and it's got impact that's key you know people don't necessarily want to fund good science if it's not actually benefiting society especially if it's taxpayers money which is fair enough so actually trying to address questions that hopefully can then actually better impact society, I think is really the key for sort of good science moving forward. It feels like it's a whole other skill set you need. Yeah. I'd love to um, understand, you know, when you're in the field, because I think there've been some times in your career, perhaps not right now, depending on the research you're doing here in Sydney, but that where you've spent fairly extended periods of time in fairly remote or very remote places. How is just getting by day to day living in that environment? You can't just nip down to the 7-Eleven if you've run out of something, I imagine. Lists say, and yeah. lists and lists. Organisation, because like what springs to mind with that is I spent about two and a half months in a really remote part of Indonesia during my PhD. If I didn't have it, I wasn't going to get it and there was no way it was going to get there. So I had to have everything that I needed to be self-sufficient for that period of time from personal belongings to to the scientific equipment so 
in terms of the science, I actually sort of went through everything that I was going to do like as a mock-up in the lab. And just because there's things like you wouldn't necessarily think of that you need because you're just used to it being there. So I was like, okay, I have to be really resourceful and think about that. And then, yeah, sometimes you do forget stuff, the best planning in the world that happens. And you just become very resourceful and open-minded to, okay, I don't have glass, for example, but I need a vessel that can hold water and transfer it from A to B. You walk along the beach, you find some marine litter and you're like, oh, that plastic bucket will work so you just you know you become suddenly very you know back to basics and you have a task and what will fulfill that task is it a bit robinson crusoe like are you there with just very small number of other people or a group how does, how does again it, it, it depends yeah. but some of them are yeah a little bit like that and you come back afterwards to civilization and look at yourself in the mirror a little horrified because you probably <laughs> haven't had like a fresh water shower for for a couple of months and have been yeah using a bucket and scoop but that's also part of what draws you to the research in terms of, for me, being able to have such a diverse sort of job that allows me to experience some of the most amazing parts of the world. I'm curious, you know, when you're doing your research in the water, on the reef, do you worry about sharks? Sharks, yeah. I mean, sea sharks, deal with sharks. great sharks. I know, oh, I love sharks. So, I love them. You know, again, it's one of those things where, you know, when you're working, yeah, it's going to be in your mind if you see them and it's different to when you're maybe going out for fun trying to look at them because you're not paying attention. Yeah. But yeah, sharks, you know, not something I'm worried about. However, uh, up in Queensland at my study sites, crocodiles, on the other oh. hand, are oh, really? something that, yeah, in the mangroves and up north, there's a lot of crocodiles. So of that's course, something yeah, that wow. for me is probably more of a, a immediate concern so yeah we have to try to do our best we have um like drones and also rovs so in some places we'll try not to get into the water and we'll do our research using remote vehicles to sample and take videos and try to limit in water time gosh and what's going through your mind when you're down there underwater and there could be a crocodile I just don't think about it. I just think I, I think just blanket. Yeah, I just it's one of those things where you've done the risk assessment at the time to say, yeah, all things considered, I consider the risk low enough to get in the water. And then as soon as I've entered the water, at that point, my focus is on the task at hand because the minute you let and you sometimes you have to push it out, but the minute that you let that sort of doubt start do, to do, come do, in, do. exactly <laughs> anything, like that, then it's just amazing the power of the mind. Like if you know, it's fascinating yeah. like how much and it can completely take over what you're trying to achieve. So for me, I just have to not let it in. Yeah, I, I really resonate with that because I do ocean swimming. And I've seen great whites. I went down and did the shark thing. All oh, right, you've seen great whites only in a cage. In a cage, yeah. yeah. But it. that was enough, right? Yeah. Seeing yeah. great white in a cage yeah. was enough. And so I often have that image of a great white yeah. coming at me, yeah. and I literally spend five minutes like just pushing it out of my mind, yeah. and then it's gone. Yeah, and then I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. And sort of coming back to being a, a woman, I know that you're really passionate about getting more women in STEM. But what's been the challenges for you in terms of being a woman in STEM? If any. If any. So I would say that I feel that I've been quite lucky in terms of I've been surrounded by both women and men that I feel throughout my career have been real facilitators of women in STEM. But equally, that's not 
always the case and it often isn't the case. I think in my experience, it's often actually when I've moved out of, say, the university setting and I've been asked to do a presentation at a corporate business, for example, or I've turned up even at a school sometimes and someone says, oh, you know, we've got a doctor camp here to talk about whatever. And you can see the reaction that, you know, they're not expecting you to be as young or they're not expecting you to be female or you and you can just sense the surprise that you're the person that's coming to talk or to give this presentation so I'd say I've, I've felt that more in other settings I've had some collaborators that I've worked with where I say something and then another one of my colleagues that happens to be male says something and it's received a lot more positively or without less challenge from them but I'm one of these people I feel I, t- I take that on board and I sort of not rise to the challenge but I'm not going to let that hold me down and try to use that when I've got other women in STEM, you know, if I'm in an environment where they some say something that's really good or positive to actually actively reinforce that in the room because mm. I find that as a strategy if you've got often less women in the room than men sometimes you need to support each yeah, other yeah you need to support each other and, and more so than men do to actually see you know and that doesn't make it right but it's a strategy at the moment as we're trying to get to a point where this isn't even a conversation that yeah. we have the voices heard yeah I love that I think it's so true especially you know you can also do it if you see a woman being interrupted you can say hang on she had you know yeah. Susan hadn't finished and yeah. that sort of mutual support I think is a really good strategy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And what are your tactics when a man does talk over you or says your point? That's a good question. So if someone talks over me, I would generally let them finish because I don't then want to interrupt them. So I let them finish, say, sorry, I actually hadn't quite finished and try to continue. That may not always work depending if someone else has jumped in. But I feel that then trying to talk back over them sometimes can make it sort of look quite emotional and I'll let them finish and then try it. If someone says my point, and that's something that happens more often, is following up and be like, oh, I think that was quite similar to what I was suggesting, if I can add. Because often if it's your point or your idea, you've got more context behind it or, you've, you know, for me – and this is something I've over time got more confident at. But if I'm in a room, especially with a lot of really you know, prestigious scientists and colleagues, I, I'm not the first one to put my hand up and say something. I do sit there and I think, okay, am I making a good point? Is it relevant? I don't want to sound stupid. And as I've got older, I've sort of learned to worry about that less. And I just say, what well, most of the time I've got the thought process and the support behind my idea. So I feel I can follow up and, and add more context. And I also have the attitude that nine times out of the 10, it's the result that I'm interested in and not necessarily whose idea it is to get there. So sometimes, again, it's like, okay, as long as we get to point X, that's how we got there, then then so be it. But that definitely needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. How's it felt at the UN? Because that must be quite an intimidating environment with all these amazing people. Yeah. I think a lot of us that that had been there for, you know, the first time. And for me personally, you know, you do have that moment of like imposter syndrome, like, um, yes, Emma Camp from Essex is now standing at the UN, like what is going on here? But then after I sort of, you know, again, pushed out of my mind and said, you know, you've worked hard to be here, like you deserve to be here and you've got something to bring to the table, then it's sort of just absorbing everything that was going on and what's exciting with the UN is that it is so diverse and it's based around you know equality and equity and allowing everybody to you know have a voice at some capacity so I found it very enlightening and engaging. And I think you're about to jet off to New York aren't you to be part of a panel and speak at the UN what's going to be your key message to that audience? 
Yes, I'm part of a panel and it's about young women leaders shaping the global agenda. And for me in particular, it's talking about women in STEM, how far we've come and where we're trying to get to. And my, I guess, key message is about sort of we're trying to retain women in STEM. So we still need to get more women into STEM, particularly from minority backgrounds and across like all countries globally. But then in particular, we need to keep them in STEM. We need to get women into higher positions within the science and technology agenda. And what's your sort of secret bullet to help that retention issue? Because it is a real issue, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's different angles to this. For me, one part would be, you know, if, if younger women want to have children, how do we set up the pathways to retain them so they don't have to make a choice between family and career. Also, giving people the mechanism and the confidence, you know, a lot of women go through that, you know, imposter syndrome, am I good enough? And so like making sure that actually we have all of the training and the mechanisms within our institutions to promote women to, you know, continue on. And what would your advice be to our listeners as far as, you know, how to best go for it and go after their career dreams? Yeah, I think for me, the bit of advice would be just to go for it and really don't doubt yourself. You know, you're going to have setbacks. Things aren't always going to go to plan and you, you might have your roadmap and you might deviate, but don't lose sight and the confidence of, of what you want to achieve. And then I guess also, you know, set yourself small milestones to get there. So if you know, for example, you know, you've got that dream job, what skills do you need to get there? How can you acquire them? Don't worry if you don't have all of them at once, but there's so many opportunities to reach out to colleagues or friends or online just to see how you can upskill to get there and don't, you know, not believe in in yourself. It's been so fantastic talking to you today, Emma. Before we go, how can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, that would be great. So I have an Instagram and Twitter. Both of those are MRF Camp, um, and that's where sort of all of the rapid and up-to-date messages are kept. Also, I've got a website, so www.mrfcamp.com, and I can again share that with you. And the UN Young Leaders also have a page, so we can share that. And thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Well, we'll put that on the episode page will, for indeed. everyone. And so. It's just been an absolute pleasure talking to Emma. Good luck with all the really important work that you're doing. It's so important the work you do. It so is. And, you know, please keep saying I can and I will. Thank you. And I can and I will. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you. What an impressive person Emma is, isn't she? She's so down to earth and delightful, yet she also has, thank goodness, this real steely resolve and passion to do all she can to save the world's reefs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seriously impressed with her savviness. She is clear that advocacy is a big part of her role, and that's why she's getting out there and doing so much speaking and writing. Yeah, it's so important to bring governments and everyone along with her in this fight to save the reefs. I must say, I do feel inspired and hopeful that we've got people like Emma fighting so hard for the reef. Yeah, absolutely. But as we've heard from Emma, we can all do our bit to save our oceans. We've detailed a number of resources actually on Emma's episode page on our website, don'tstopusnow.co. So check it out if you're interested in making your own difference wherever you are in the world. 
Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Woohoo! Watch out for our next episode in two weeks' time. It's going to be another how-to episode. And in fact, we haven't decided yet what the topic will be. So if you've got any burning career issues you'd like some practical advice on, then let us know at don'tstopusnow.co. So see you then. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.